Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. More scrutiny of SDSU's handling of rape allegations against three football players. And they're complicit in their silence and they're complicit in their inactions. So the response is warranted. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A dangerous heat wave is approaching San Diego County. It's a dome of hot air. So it's going to start our temperatures off really warm by Wednesday, and then we're just going to be stuck. We'll also get a rundown of important bills that have crossed the finish line in the California legislature. And have you noticed more ants infesting your home? If so, there's a reason. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The SDSU football team is gearing up for its first game of the season on Saturday at the brand new Snapdragon Stadium. That was a subject athletics director John Wicker was hoping to talk about at a press conference yesterday. But media at the presser were more interested in getting answers on the university's handling of rape allegations against three former Aztec football players. KPBS reporter Alexander Wynn has been covering the story, and he joins me now. Alex, welcome. Andrew, thanks for having me. Can you start by just giving us a recap of what happened at that press conference yesterday? Well, both football coach Brady Hoke and athletic director John Wicker read from prepared statements and tried to steer the conversation to the season opener at Snapdragon Stadium this weekend. But when reporters pressed them on the rape allegations, they initially refused to answer and then walked out as more people started to ask questions about that. And then several minutes later, only Wicker returned to address reporters' questions. Hook also returned uh, a little bit later after that, but only to talk about football. Now, one bit of information that the university has since confirmed is the connection between this allegation of gang rape, uh, which happened back in October, 
and the decision to bring Brenda Tracy to speak to SDSU athletes. Now, she's a survivor of a gang rape, allegedly committed by Oregon State football players, and she's since become a public speaker on sexual violence. Tell us about that decision to bring her to campus. Well, yes, uh, she's been giving talks to universities since uh, 2016 about her experience as a rape survivor and hoping that her message of not being complicit and speaking out against sexual violence resonate with these young men. Now, I talked to her this morning, and this is what she has to say about her work. My work has had an impact, and whether that's on a campus as a whole, I've seen a lot of impact happen at you know, schools like UTSA, football teams like Stanford, or this, you know, individuals that come to me and talk to me and disclose their stories or they're getting help now. I think my work does make an impact. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it did, but I can only do so much. I'm, I'm one person. And when I leave a campus, I obviously give people a call to action. And, you know, I tell them how I was affected with my own story and then what they do with that information and how they then, you know, do their own work is their choice and their decision. But then they also have to live with the consequences sometimes of those decisions as well. Now, Alex, Brenda Tracy came to SDSU not even knowing that they called her there because of a specific allegation of gang rape. What was Tracy's message to the football team? Well, Andrew, when schools bring her in, she tells me that it's normal and it's sort of usual course of action that they say, well, there's this incident that happened and she didn't really go into detail about it. But her message to the students there is that there's always going to be people who do bad things. But what's more important is that 90% or so of the people who are good people need to speak up and create a community where the people who do bad things don't feel emboldened to do bad things. And that's her big message. Be part of the solution. You're part of the solution or the problem. Are you part of the, the good guys or not? And then you need to all align yourselves together. The 90% of the good men need to be louder than that one athlete. And we need to create communities where the good people are letting these perpetrators understand, like, you're not safe here. This is not acceptable behavior. The problem is that so many people are complicit in their silence and inaction. They're, they're just not doing anything. They're, they're acting like it's not their issue, not their problem. But every single one of us creates the culture that we live in and the environment that we live in. And so what role are we playing in that? Oh, Alex, one of the reasons that the university is under scrutiny is for its decision to hold off on investigating this alleged gang rape until after the San Diego Police Department concluded its own investigation. And they made that decision at the request of SDPD. Uh, they were concerned that a university investigation could interfere with their criminal investigation. Does Brenda Tracy have anything to say about that university decision to not investigate once they became aware of the allegations? Yes, uh, she thinks it was a misstep by the university. Obviously, she says that a criminal investigation and a Title IX investigation could go hand in hand and that the university could work together to do some sort of investigation or not. But she says the university have a responsibility to protect students first and foremost. Title IX and the criminal process are two separate processes, and they're two separate processes for a reason. The school has an obligation to prioritize student safety, and they were aware of a criminal act. Obviously, there's a police investigation going on. They are aware of a serious incident 
that could potentially threaten the safety of other students on their campus. So to do nothing is not okay. They should have had done their own investigation and not defer to the police. It feels very convenient that they defer to the police rather than doing some of their own investigation to make sure that everybody on that campus was okay. Alex, you got a statement from the parents of Matt Ariza, who is one of the accused football players in this case. Uh, He was drafted by the Buffalo Bills. Uh, What did that statement from his parents say? Well, they say that that he was unfairly convicted in the media and by the public. Just to give you a little background on Matt, he's a local kid. He went to Rancho Bernardo High School and was a standout football player there before coming to San Diego State. They said he's been canceled and that there was a war waged on him. In the statement, they say people have taken his information, referring to the attorney for Jane Doe, uh, his information as factual when it is not. We do not wish this experience on anyone, but question why our son was the only one receiving this kind of treatment by social media and national news media. Now, they say that people should let the justice system run its course and that there have been multiple witnesses that dispute the claims made by the now 18-year-old woman. I've been speaking with Alexander Wynn, KPBS reporter. Alex, thanks for your reporting on this. Thank you for having me. An excessive heat warning went into effect for San Diego this morning, and it will extend into next Monday night. Forecasters say we're in for a long stretch of very hot and unusually humid weather. Highs in the 80s, 90s, and even 100s inland will feel even hotter because of the humidity. It's time to remember all we've been told about coping with high temperatures, from keeping hydrated to checking up on neighbors who may be in danger from the heat. And joining me is Alex Tardy, Warning Coordination Meteorologist for the National Weather Service in San Diego. Alex, welcome back. Thank you for having me on. Just when we thought the summer heat and humidity couldn't get much worse, we get a forecast like this. What is causing this unusual weather? Yeah, you're right. So here we are, end of August, uh, almost Labor Day weekend. Everyone's going back to school, college, and vacation. Summer's over, so to speak. But um, what we're looking at is a strong upper-level high-pressure system, so basically a block in the atmosphere that is going to set up right over Southern California, and it's a dome of hot air. So it's going to start our temperatures off really warm by Wednesday, and then we're just going to be stuck And we're going to look at those type of warm, unusually warm temperatures, hot temperatures uh, in a lot of places away from the beaches all the way through the holiday weekend. And so this is just happening in Southern California? Yeah, so it's um, it's literally right over the top of us. So it's central Southern California. It'll be the desert southwest as well. But because they've had so much monsoon moisture Uh, the real impact is going to be our region in Southern California and areas away from the traditional hot deserts. So they'll be hot, but it's all relative. We'll be much hotter than, than usual for us. Now, obviously, this is not a Santa Ana because it's not dry heat, but will we be getting any windy conditions with this heat wave? The winds look to be light, um, but unfortunately, that means the sea breeze is going to be light, and that's our free air conditioner. We won't be seeing the Santa Ana winds, and we're going to retain some of that monsoonal moisture. Our ocean temperatures are in the 70s, 
the combination of retaining some of that monsoonal moisture that, that we had during August and the warm ocean temperatures, what that means is it's going to feel a little stickier, and especially at night, and that keeps our overnight low temperatures warmer than we might normally see. So we don't catch much of a break even at night. That's one of the most unpleasant and dangerous aspects of this week-long event, isn't it? That it won't cool off much overnight. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so what we call that is a cumulative impact. So as you go into the heat wave, you know, one or two days, not so bad. But then when you don't get the cooling at night and then it carries over three, four days, we, it's an accumulative impact. So your home and your business doesn't cool off as well. You have to run your AC more to compensate that. If you don't have air conditioning, it really can become impactful as you go deeper into the heat wave with a combination of the nighttime warmth and the daytime heat. And what are the temperature forecasts for San Diego along the coast and inland? Yeah, so starting at the beaches, the beaches will be the only place that really sees relief. But even there, you know, there will be limited low clouds and fog. So temperatures will get up around 80 on on the beach. Now, when you go in just a mile or two, we're talking temperatures well in the 80s for several days, maybe even touching 90 on the coast. Uh, So that includes, you know, like downtown San Diego, you know, getting well into the 80s, maybe even touching 90. Now, when you get into I-15 corridor, all bets are off and and you're going to be well into the 90s, not just for one day, uh, you know, on Wednesday, but but multiple days. um, And some of the peak of that heat, will not occur until the weekend time frame when we're all out and about. Mountains, not much relief, 80s and 90s. And then, of course, the deserts, it's relative for them. But even for the desert, it's going to be between 110 and 115. So no matter where you are, you're going to be seeing most places experiencing temperatures in the upper 80s and well into the 90s. And how high is the humidity going to get? Yeah, so the humidity is all relative, of course. So during the daytime, when your when your temperature gets to its maximum, you know, gets to 100, your humidity usually is at its lowest point. But what happens is um, in the morning and at night when you lower down, um, that really raises the humidity um, on those warm nights. And so the, the really muggy, sticky feeling is that uh, early morning or overnight period, and that's when the humidity will be highest. The humidity will be high enough to reduce some of our fire threat, but it won't eliminate the fire threat, especially in the afternoons. Now, people should take this kind of heat seriously, shouldn't they? Yes. You know, we call uh, heat waves uh, anywhere in the country as kind of a silent killer. A lot of times what happens is it's hard to recognize it. It's the heat exhaustion. You know, you're out for two hours in the direct sun or you're hiking, you're doing garden work, you're exercising. You're just maybe not paying attention as much. And sometimes it sneaks up on us in the form of heat exhaustion. And often, like in sports, uh, people don't realize it until like an hour or two after the game or or when they're in a cool place and they're having trouble cooling down or they're uh, continuing to sweat. And what are some of the best ways to cope? Be prepared. So take it serious, like you mentioned. Check the forecast. Really try to avoid the peak of the day, you know, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Really try to do that. Uh, And if you must be outdoors, stay hydrated, wear appropriate uh, clothing, take breaks in the shade frequently, more than you normally would, even if you're in good shape. This type of heat wave can affect elderly and the young, but it can really affect all of us when it comes to these type of warning level heat waves. So Plan accordingly and change your plans if you can. Uh, Otherwise, just take it slow with breaks. You mentioned people who don't have air conditioning. There are quite a few people in San Diego who don't have air conditioning. And I read that it's a good idea to find somewhere cool 
to cool off for at least a couple of hours a day. Is that right? Yeah, it's really important. And you're right. In San Diego, you know, even in my neighborhood where I live, you know, several of my neighbors don't have air conditioner. Um, they don't even have the option. And so uh, in those situations, no matter what it is for you, there's always cooling centers, which are typically libraries and, and 211 San Diego information will provide locations of that. There's the mall, the traditional mall um, or department stores. And those are always a great place uh, or the movie theater during the peak of the heat to just get out of it and take a break. When is the heat wave going to let up, Alex? Well, that's a good question. We know for sure it's going to continue through Labor Day weekend. So right through Monday, we're hopeful there is some indication of of a decrease um, in a breakdown, so to speak, in the heat wave next Tuesday. But it may return again um, as we go into uh, the second week of September. So for right now, it looks pretty sure it's going to hang in there strong uh, all the way through Monday and Labor Day. And it may last until the middle of September? Yeah, it may have another uh, resurgence. So if we do get a break after Labor Day weekend, that will be noticeable and that will be, we'll be thankful for that for sure. Yes, indeed. I've been speaking with Alex Tardy, who is with the National Weather Service in San Diego. Alex, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen in for Jade Heineman. Lawmakers in Sacramento are working furiously to decide on hundreds of bills before this legislative session ends tomorrow at midnight. And the topics involved couldn't be more serious, from climate and abortion to working conditions and housing. These are not partisan battles in the overwhelmingly Democratic legislature, but rather a tug of war of compromises between progressive and moderate members of the party and with Governor Newsom. Joining me is Cal Matters reporter Emily Hoven. And Emily, welcome. Thanks for having me, Maureen. So the legislature passed one significant bill yesterday. It would set up a council to determine wages and working conditions for employees at major fast food restaurants. But it barely passed in both houses. Why is it controversial? Yeah, it squeaked out of both houses of the legislature with uh, the minimum number of votes. So there wasn't a vote to spare. And, you know, basically would create this council that would have state appointed members, some from the governor, members of unions, members of business groups to sit down and work out these statewide standards when it comes to wages, 
working conditions, benefits, things like that. And a lot of the pushback that we're hearing from business groups and, you know, many of the moderate Democrats in in the legislature is why are we having people that are not elected representatives making these decisions? Um, And also some fast food franchises and um, restaurants are not going to be able to afford this. So um, those were some of the major points of contention that, that we were hearing. And what's being called a housing streamlining package has also passed. What's that about? Yeah, so there was, you know, housing tends to be one of the most controversial uh, issues in the legislature, obviously California having a massive housing crisis, affordability, not enough homes. And so there was this very rare compromise that came together at the last minute, there had been two major housing bills put forward. And one was backed by a very powerful uh, union in California. And another was backed by affordable housing developers and another union. And at the end of the day, lawmakers said, you know what, we're just going to move forward with both of these bills. And we're going to let developers decide which option they want to take. They can either choose to have basically strict, stricter labor standards or stricter affordability standards. And so they kind of came to the conclusion, it's very interesting, of let the market decide what works better. It's surprising the number of climate action related bills that are being considered at the end of the session. Probably the biggest one concerns Governor Newsom's proposal to keep the nuclear plant at Diablo Canyon open years longer than planned. What's happening with that legislation? Yeah, so um, (laughs) the governor kind of introduced this proposal very last minute, and um, we saw on Sunday night lawmakers actually put a bill into print right before this deadline for them to amend any bills before the end of the session. Um, And it keeps the core of the governor's proposal, which is to extend the lifespan of Diablo Canyon past the planned 2025 closure and give the operator of this power plant, PG&E, a forgivable loan of as much as $1.4 billion to basically keep this, this plant running. Where they differ is that Newsom had said, okay, let's let's allow this plant to keep running up until 2035 if necessary. And lawmakers said, no, 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 we're going to stick at 2030. Um, the, the power plant is very controversial. There's people that oppose nuclear energy. And then there's also concerns about the marine life and radioactive waste and earthquake faults nearby that, you know, kind of have raised a lot of safety concerns about, about this plant. And so I think lawmakers are trying to stick this, this middle ground where we'll extend it a little bit because we do need to shore up the state's energy grid, especially with these heat waves coming up. Um, but we also don't want to write a blank check to PG&E and have this plant go on for a lot longer than we originally agreed on having it run for. What are some other big climate bills that need to be voted on? Um, so some of the other climate bills that they're going to vote on um, would accelerate the pace of greenhouse gas cuts in California. Right now, the state has a goal of uh, slashing 40%. Um, of its emissions by 2030 from 1990 levels. And even though California is not currently on track to meet that existing goal, the governor wants to ramp it up to 55% cuts um, in the same timeframe by 2030. He also has proposed, um, and lawmakers are going to vote on a bill that would create um, 3,200 feet setbacks between um, new oil and gas wells and sensitive areas like schools and housing houses and childcare centers. And he also wants to establish in law a goal that was originally set set by former Governor Jerry Brown um, to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible and no later than 2045. And there are a couple of other ones, but those those are the main 
main ones. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what lawmakers, whether lawmakers decide to enact this this last minute and very ambitious package. At the last minute on Friday, the governor included funds in his budget to pay for travel expenses for women coming to California for abortions. Was that because of pressure from lawmakers? I think it was definitely the results of these protracted conversations that the governor has been having with lawmakers and also with various advocacy groups. And I think that as the governor has been ramping up his own attacks against red states like Florida and Texas and other states that are enacting abortion bans and seeing the the quantity of states that are moving to to enact those types types of bans following um, the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe versus Wade, I think he was persuaded that it's probably the right thing to do to help pay for these women to travel to California. Um, A lot of advocates made the point that it's all well and good to say that California is a sanctuary for out-of-state women seeking abortions. But if those women have no way of getting to California, then we're not really serving as a sanctuary. And so I think that the governor decided to, okay, we're going to unlock up to $20 million um, of state money to pay for those women to, to come to California. Now, at the beginning of the week, legislators had over 500 bills to consider before Wednesday night. And I guess the overarching question in all this is why does it get down to this crazy end of session countdown for so many important bills? Oh, my gosh, that's the that's the million dollar question. Um, I think for every reporter watching it, we're all asking that scratching our heads. You know, last night, the Senate was actually voting on bills until 1230 in the morning. Um, And there are a lot of possible reasons for this. I think some of it is just the negotiations take a long time. People don't want to give an inch. I mean, even with the housing deal, right, it came together at the last minute because there almost was no other alternative. So sometimes I think having that deadline, it, it forces lawmakers to, to act in some way or another. Um, I also think that for very controversial bills, um, they usually don't vote on the very, very, very controversial ones until the actual last minute of the session. Um, and I think after that session ends, they go back to their district, it might allow them to kind of avoid some of the political fallout or repercussions or questions from reporters that they might get if they were still in the Capitol, you know, just doing their normal business. And the governor has until the end of September to sign these bills, right? He does. Yeah. And so, you know, there's going to be behind the scenes lobbying going on um, with different interest groups uh, pressuring him to act one way or another. They're going to be right on his doorstep up until the day that he decides what to do on that. I've been speaking with CalMatters reporter Emily Hoven. Emily, thank you. Thanks so much, Maureen. Yesterday, San Diego Unified students returned to class for their first day of the new school year. With the excitement of school starting comes the reality that many children are still feeling the effects of extended school closures during the coronavirus pandemic. A new book from journalist Anya Kamenitz documents stories of trauma and resilience among students and their families. And it questions the decision to keep schools closed for so long, as they were in many parts of San Diego. Kamenitz spoke with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez about her book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. So in your book, we hear from kids and families from a wide variety of backgrounds all over the country. What is the common thread you found? Two things, I would say. One is that they were stretched to their breaking point by the various stresses of the pandemic, economic, social, the fear, the political division, 
And the other thread, of course, is the love. I mean, every family I talked with, um, as hard as it was, they found solace in being together even during the darkest parts of this pandemic. What do we know today about the impact of the school closures and what it did to children? We know it's going to take several years for children to resume the test score trajectory that they were on before the pandemic. That's an average, obviously. Some kids are are fine right now, and some kids uh, might never catch up. We also know that there's been a huge downturn in public school enrollment as well as in college going. You know, some of those kids are homeschooled or they're in private schools and they're going to be fine, but some of those kids have dropped out and they have drifted into paid work. And that's very bothersome um, for the future of this country. In your introduction, you write that you were thinking of this book as a little like restorative justice or therapy. Why do you feel that approach was the best way to tell this story? I just feel like we tend to rush past the pain of kids because it is painful for us. I mean, everybody who has a child understands that you're affected differently by the sound or the sight of a suffering child. And unfortunately, that sentiment oftentimes leads us to not pay attention to what is actually happening. So I wrote this book to make sure we took a good hard look at what happened to kids during the beginning of this pandemic. And with that hope, you know, in restorative justice comes, you know, figuring out what the harms are and how we redress it. And in a therapeutic context, you start talking about what happened because again, that's going to help you identify how you're going to feel better about it. So we have been here before in the sense that your book uh, talks about other examples where schools were closed down and the impact. One of those was in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Tell us what happened to those kids. Yeah. um, So I was down there as a young reporter. Um, I I went to high school in New Orleans as well. And what we found is that kids were out of school uh, usually for a few weeks. The public schools in the city shuttered, uh, were closed for the fall semester of 2005. And mostly never reopened because they were all replaced with charter schools uh, over time. Those kids suffered extreme academic setbacks that took a couple of years actually to recover the ground that they lost, even though they weren't out of school very long. And the impact on youth in general, we saw a downturn in college going, a downturn in high school graduation rates that persisted for up to a decade after the storm. So your book talks about schools are much more than just places of learning, but also essential for food and nutrition, childcare, and healthcare. Do you think that government and school officials could have done more to fill those gaps while schools were closed? Absolutely. They could have and should have. Um, I, I point to countries in Europe that, despite the fact that they struggled as well with the pandemic and various waves of the pandemic, They made a concerted effort to prioritize children for reopening. And that's exactly what we never did in this country. We obviously had red states that opened everything up with almost no precautions. And then we had blue states that allowed our bars and restaurants to be open while schools and daycares were shut. And that's the part that's so hard for me to understand, not only as a reporter, but as a parent. So full disclosure, I was a special ed teacher with San Diego Unified for seven years before taking this job. You profile those students with special needs who are especially impacted. Tell us about them. Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, 14% of kids have disabilities. It's not some tiny margin. And for the most part, what families told me was that Zoom was not an effective delivery system for the education, the socialization, and the therapies that those kids needed. And what you see with kids with disabilities is that 
not only do they not make progress, but they can go backwards. They can regress because these are developmental disorders and they follow developmental pathways. And so we're seeing so many struggles and with oftentimes the school struggles and the social struggles come mental health struggles as well. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking families that I talked with was it was a child in um, Hawaii and she had multiple severe disabilities. She was autistic and nonverbal, but she loved school and she was in a mainstream classroom. Her, her classmates surrounded her with love and affection. When she was cut off from all of that, she had no real way of understanding why. And she became horribly depressed and regressed in a number of ways. And her mother says that she just, she's never been the same. So there is another population that you address, and that is uh, students along the U.S.-Mexico border, closer to home for us here in San Diego. Tell us about the experiences of those children. Yeah, you know, I mean, this would have taken a whole other book, and I hope that there is another book out there. But as we know, you know, MPP, the Remain in Mexico policy, created a really upsetting situation on the U.S. border. And what I talk, I talked to professionals, a lawyer and a a couple of psychologists who dealt with um, kids in that situation. And occasionally migrant children who did cross the border during the pandemic were quarantined all by themselves. So it was a really um, awful situation. And, um, you know, the long-term issue as well, obviously there's been an interruption in kind of immigration patterns. And so we're seeing that now with with the flow of kids over the border and and trying to resettle them and reintegrate them, which is obviously a long-term concern. Anya, you say in your book that the story is not over. So like the title of your book asks, where do we go now? I would love to see renewed emphasis on the well-being of children and families in our politics. It was really disappointing when the uh, Inflation Reduction Act was passed. Um, you know, it was a huge Democratic victory on on climate and on uh, health care, but They left out the provisions that had been in the broader uh, Joe Biden's broader agenda when it came to children and families. And a lot of people thought this was going to be the moment that we'd finally get subsidized childcare, federally guaranteed paid leave and a child tax credit. So I really hope that those I don't just hope but I would exhort anyone who's paying attention to politics and wants to get involved to say, you know, this this can't wait any longer. I like to end on an encouraging note. Where is the hope in this situation? You know, the hope is always going to be found in the love for kids and the fact that kids have a chance to grow. And all of the families I followed during the pandemic, they all felt that there were silver linings in simply being able to be together when the world stopped. And so I think, I hope that we all kind of get a chance to keep that in mind as we go forward to a, a, you know, a more normal and a busier world, that, that there's something really magical about being able to be together with your loving family when you can. I have been speaking with Anya Kamenetz, author of the new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Anya, thank you. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen in for Jade Heineman. It happens to the best of us. You wake up one summer morning, casually stroll through your home, and are confronted with ants. 
ants swarming on the cat food, ants marching into your garbage, ants claiming a beachhead in your bathroom. Where do they come from? Why are they here and what can make them go away? Professor David Hallway is in the Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution at UC San Diego. He studies the intricate structure of ant colonies, the different species of ants in California, and why those tiny ants in your sink may be a problem for our ecology. Professor Hallway, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. The kind of ants... I usually see these days are extremely small, not the bigger ants that I remember at picnics on the East Coast. What kind of ants are these tiny ones? Well, we have between 100 and 200 different ant species here in San Diego County, but the most common ant that comes into people's homes, especially at this time of year, is the Argentine ant, which is a species that's been in California for over 100 years. So you say they've been here for about 100 years, so they're not native to California? That's correct. They're, as their name would imply, they're native to uh, southern South America, northern Argentina, and surrounding regions, but have been introduced into new environments uh, all over the world. How big is the colony of Argentine ants in California? Well, that's a good question. The Argentine ants in California form what are often called super colonies, and, and what biologists mean by this is that the the workers from different locations tend to not act aggressively with one another. The super colonies are made up of of ants that live in in individual nests. And what makes the Argentine ant interesting is that they will relocate their nests often throughout the year in response to changing environmental conditions and opportunities such as uh, food in people's homes. Do they pose a threat to our ecology since they are not from around here originally? Well, they do. The Argentine ant is is an interesting species because in addition to being an urban pest where it comes into people's homes, it's also a conservation problem. In the displacement of native ants is a a well-documented phenomenon associated with Argentine ant invasions. But Argentine ants disrupt ecosystems in a variety of other ways as well. They interfere with plant-pollinator interactions. They also interfere with uh, seed dispersal mutualisms. And another way in which they affect our local ecosystems is that there are organisms that prey upon native ants, but don't prey upon Argentine ants. And and one that seems to have declined locally is the, the coastal horn lizard. Coastal horn lizards... Uh, consume uh, arthropods, but that seem to like large-bodied ant species, harvester ants, carpenter ants, things like that, but they don't feed on, on Argentine ants. Why do the ants make incursions into houses? What are they looking for that they can't find outside? Well, at this time of year, uh, the Argentine ants mostly looking for water, and this will bring them into people's homes. And when they come into people's homes and they find food, they'll also take advantage of the food as well. The Argentine ant will also come into people's homes uh, at the start of winter because they, they'll get uh, flooded out of their nest sites. So the, the period of the year when, when Argentine ants seem most conspicuous as pests tend to be uh, July through through the first part of the first part of winter, November, December. But sometimes you find lines of ants in a closet or some other place where there's no water, there's no food. So how does that happen? Well, they do explore their landscape. So they try to find 
uh, nest sites that are favorable to them, that have the right temperature and humidity. And uh, in people's homes, this can sometimes result in them uh, coming into portions of the, the house where, where there aren't obvious sources of water uh, or food, but they, they tend to be temporary visitors in those areas. And uh, they, they will go away if there's not a, a suitable nest site. Now, occasionally you'll see one or two ants on their own. Does the colony send out scouts to see if they're entering a good habitat? They do. So, so that, that's very common uh, among ants. Uh, scouts will uh, look for food. In some cases, they'll look for new nest sites. And the Argentine ant has a very well-developed uh, chemical recruitment system. So if a, if a worker is, is looking for food, say, uh, and finds uh, what seems to be a good find, um, it will lay down trail pheromone from that food source back to the nest, and workers will smell that trail pheromone and uh, go out to the food. And if they like that food, they'll lay down more trail pheromone. And within minutes, you can, depending on how far the food is away from the nest, um, within a short period of time, in any case, you can get a, a large number of ants uh, traveling from the nest to take advantage of, of food. Now, if you see an ant, the, the first reaction uh, for many people may be to get out the can of Raid. Is that an effective option? Well, pesticides are uh, often very effective at killing insects, and there are a variety of products uh, available that one can use to, to kill ants. Doing so is, is often unnecessary because, as we've discussed, ants are uh, typically temporary visitors uh, inside homes, and pesticides have well-known environmental impacts. Uh, many of the pesticides that are commercially available can be environmentally persistent and uh, be carried in stormwater uh, into freshwater ecosystems where they have effects that are uh, far-reaching and uh, extend well beyond use outside of a, of a house, for example. The other thing I can say is that uh, despite the fact that Argentine ants are uh, usually perceived as a nuisance inside the house, they are completely harmless. They don't sting, and they also don't carry any diseases. Professor, what do you do when you see ants in your house? Well, I try to figure out why they're in the house, and uh, oftentimes they're, they're coming in to uh, seek out sources of water, like we've discussed. But I, I have to say that uh, we stopped irrigating very much in our yard uh, several years ago. And the, uh, the numbers of Argentine ants uh, in our yard have dropped greatly uh, to the point where we haven't had Argentine ants in our house for, for some time, well over a year. And we have uh, done experiments in the field where we've used irrigation to uh, encourage our Argentine ants to spread. And those experiments were very clear. Argentine ants really seek out water and if the water is eliminated, Argentine ants will retreat. Okay, I've been speaking with Professor David Hallway. He's in the Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolution at UC San Diego. Professor, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Two prominent women of color have finally received some long-overdue recognition from Hollywood. Native American actress and activist Sasheen Littlefeather received an official apology from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences for the abuse she endured at the 1973 Oscars and the impact it had on her career. 
Actress Juanita Moore appeared in more than 80 films and TV shows, but wasn't always credited for her work. In 1959, she became the fifth black actor in movie-making history to be nominated for an Oscar. The pioneering actress will finally be honored with her very own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Here's KQED's Sasha Coca with more. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Sasheen Littlefeather. In 1973, Sasheen Littlefeather caused an uproar when she appeared at the Oscars awards ceremony on behalf of Marlon Brando. That year, he won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in The Godfather. Sasheen Littlefeather walked up on stage and announced that Brando would not be accepting the award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. After the heckling and the booze she had to endure at the Oscars, Hollywood boycotted Littlefeather, and her TV and movie career floundered. But her work as an activist took off. Two years ago, reporter Chloe Veltman caught up with Sasheen Littlefeather at her home in Marin County and brought us her story. The more that Native American Indian people like myself speak out, the more understanding that there becomes. The truth has got to win out above all the lies that have been told about us by the dominant society. Almost 50 years after that night at the Oscars, former Academy President David Rubin wrote that the abuse Littlefeather experienced was quote unwarranted and unjustified. And he went on to write that the emotional burden she lived through and the cost to her career in the film industry are irreparable. For too long, the courage you showed has been unacknowledged. He wrote. Next month, the Academy will host a special event with Sasheen Littlefeather, featuring a public apology and a celebration of Indigenous culture. Another actress of color who's finally getting some long-awaited recognition from Hollywood: Juanita Moore. Miss Pinky, you'll have to do something about that dice. What is it this time? She's been at that new sterilizer again. Every time I sterilize the sheet, she puts them back. Says they ain't white enough. That's a clip from the 1949 film Pinky. Juanita Moore was a film, TV, and stage actress from LA. Although her name didn't even show up in the credits for a lot of the movies she was in, she appeared in more than 80 films and TV shows. And she was the fifth black actor in movie making history to be nominated for an Oscar. Hers was for her role in the 1959 film *Imitation of Life*. I just want to look at you. That's why I came. Are you happy here, honey? Are you finding what you really want? I'm somebody else. She was nominated for her performance as Annie, a mom whose light-skinned daughter Sarah Jane rejects her black identity and tries to pass as white. And if by accident we should ever pass on the street, please don't recognize me. I won't, Sarah Jane. I promise. I settle all that in my mind. Following Juanita Moore's death, her nephew Arnett Moore, who lives in Oakland, began pushing for his aunt to get a Hollywood star on the iconic Walk of Fame. He talked to us about that effort for a story we ran last year. She was a trailblazer. She opened doors. And today, a lot of the actors of color are not having to deal with some of the things she dealt with. 
Well, we've recently learned that the pioneering actress will finally be honored with her very own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame next fall. Arnett Moore says the attention Juanita Moore's legacy got from our listeners may have had a little something to do with that. That was KQED's Sasha Coca talking about the recent acknowledgement and recognition of two prominent and long-overlooked actors of color. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 